You're supposed to talk now, David. Yeah, well, you're really putting me on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, we're um, recording the podcast. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. Uh, we're your hosts. If you've listened before, you already know us, but I'm Alexander Haberbush. He's David Truschel. I'm a lawyer. He's not. Uh, neither of us are speaking in the capacity of lawyers today. Listen to the rest of our disclaimers at the end. Uh, but anyway, we're going to be doing a new series for you folks on the Russian Revolution. That's, That's right. right. Communism. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into that. Okay. We did last summer, we had a very popular series called The Summer of the Revolutions, where we compared and contrasted the American and French revolutions. So back yep. by popular demand... We're going even further left this time. <laughs> and going to be talking about the Russians. Yeah. I, before we move on. Far out of left field, right? Yeah. Well, I was gonna, <laughs> what I was going to say is, you know, I routinely see people rank the Soviet national anthem as one of the best in history. And I was just curious, you know, where, do you, where would you the place it? The people rank it that way? Yes, the people. Yes, yeah. capital is T. It actually, does it actually poll higher or... You know, is it, is it like 99% of the vote that it gets? Or, I'm, uh, <laughs> if you vote for that one, can you just submit the, the ballot that you were sent, but you vote for any other one, you got to write it in? Like, how does... Well... Be, before, I, before I can evaluate these stats, I got to know how they're collected. I'm not, I'm not talking about um, any voting, you know, appropriately enough. This is a decision that's being handed down from on high by, you know, the technocracy, The Politburo, yes. Yeah. The, the party uh, has, has decreed. Yeah, the commissars. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, very very often I see people rate that one as the best or like one of the top three, and uh, I don't I don't know what to make of that. I, the I'm music's not, not bad, you know. It's it's not the bad, communists had sort of a mixed relationship with music. You know, it's, mm-hmm. the God Save the Tsar section of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. They cut that out and replaced it. I've got a recording with I think Svetlanov conducting that, and it's you know, pretty horrendous censorship. But yeah, you know, well, and then, but. Then you had, yeah, Stalin was kind of, um, you know, he he had traditionalist tastes to a certain extent when it comes. Well, he went back and forth on Shostakovich, music. you know, wh- whether he was in his good good graces or not, or <laughs> you know, had had to premiere music in garages lined with mattresses. <laughs> so <laughs> he went back and forth. But anyway, uh, it's yeah. we should probably get started. So yeah, uh, let's play our intro. Let's hit that clip. It's three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. So you didn't join this podcast for our aesthetic judgments or for, <laughs> you know, whoever knows Mus- what else. Musicology. Or, or even political commentary, historical commentary. Why are we talking about history here, David? Well, there are a few reasons. Let's say them. One, <laughs> probably the most uh, important of which is that when people criticize the U.S. Constitution, it's usually from the angle of Marxism in some way or other. You know, it's typically, oh, you know, it was designed to protect the landed propertyed interests of all these rich the, men. The blah, Charles blah. Beard thesis, you know, he's an yeah. early 20th century historian. You know, yeah, wrote that they were basically pursuing their own class interests, which in Marxism, of course, everybody does, uh, right. whether they know it or not. And if they appear not to be doing that, well, that's because of ideology. Uh-huh. So, so there's 
conveniently no way to ever falsify this proposition. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's, but... it's kind of, you know, I, I think that based on the conservative ideology alone, the Marxist system kind of falls apart uh, because it makes all of its predictions totally unverifiable. But Yeah. That's... But so anyway, you know, that being the case, that being sort of the standard critique of the U.S. Constitution, it seems only fair. Let's take a look at what the Soviets actually did. You know, the probably outside of China, the only long-term truly communist state. And so, you know, turn about fair play. Uh, what about Cuba? <laughs> All right. On what a significant North Korea, scale, David? On a significant scale, let's say. Ones that, like, people actually might know about. Nobody what about knows the European about Union, David? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, commentary. Um... <laughs> Speaking of commentary, so if you watch our YouTube content, you know that we've been doing our remedial civics episodes Lately, mm-hmm. and a lot of those are focused on Marxism as well. Believe it or not, that was entirely coincidental. <laughs> uh, we didn't plan for those two things to coincide. Actually, I'm, at the date of recording, I'm not entirely sure which of those is going to come out first. But if you want more Marxism-related content, although on a slightly different bent, <laughs> check those out. That's, I guess, what we're doing in February. It's going to be a well, red February. That, that's appropriate, <laughs> yeah. Um, and beyond that, though, also, that you know, We've referenced the late Antonin Scalia on this point before, but you know he was testifying before the Senate. Not Judiciary not read himself, although perhaps read in the face. <laughs> Maybe uh, <laughs> he could be at times, but he makes the point that you know way too many people think of the U.S. Constitution just in terms of the Bill of Rights. So you ask them, "What do you like about the Constitution?" They'll say, "Oh, the First Amendment, or you know, Second Amendment, or whatever it is that they happen to." Like And he makes the point, the Soviet Constitution went way further in guaranteeing specific rights to people. You know, it didn't just have mm-hmm. freedom of speech. It had, free, you know, guaranteed freedom of the, you know, all this other stuff. It, it really spelled it out. And he said, you yeah, know, he says they had a much better Bill of Rights than we do. And uh-huh. we'll probably play you that clip when we actually get to their their written, if you can call it a constitution. Uh, right. They had a much better Bill of Rights than we do. So what? Right. It, it exactly. did nothing. You know, it didn't protect anything. Right, because structurally, it had no way of actually allowing people to protect those rights. And that's, you know, if you take one thing away from our stuff, it should probably be that the structure really, really, really matters. And we yeah. think that's what's unique about the American system. Well, and, and, how, and how you go about achieving your political ends, too, yeah. uh, which I think is part of the point of going through the history here. Um, you know, all lawyers are historians and, mm-hmm. you know, Bad America, lawyers are anyway. bad historians, is what because uh, it's fundamentally that's what's yeah. what's that? I said in America anyway, because precedent matters for us. It exactly. doesn't matter everywhere. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and it, you're also, I mean, both ter- in terms of precedent, both in terms of the factual record, because factual record absolutely matters. You know, you can. It's the difference between a great case and a terrible case. The legal issues will only get you so far. So mm-hmm. how you go about getting a desired end is extremely important. I think the Russian Revolution shows that very, very well because there were a lot of points where it could have gone much differently and much better yeah. than it did. Mm-hmm. It's really a tragedy what ends up occurring. So that's kind of what we want to get into. Where did it go wrong? It's not a single point. It's a lot of points. Um, and it could have, you know, they could have changed course, but they did not. And the, Rus- the Russian people are really still suffering for that. It's, yeah. you know, it's... Not good, that communism. You know. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I all guess right. <laughs> that's technically personal political opinion, but I feel like we can we can say that on this show, I think. Or is it economic opinion? 
Ooh, ooh, good question. Uh, or is it historical on, opinion? Depends or maybe it's just scientific asking. opinion, since Marxism is scientific socialism. Yeah, or historical materialism, or dialectical materialism, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of the claims they want to make for themselves. And none it, of which any of those really things probably up. outside my legal wheelhouse. <laughs> which <laughs> this is why Marx, you know, kind of studiously avoids legal commentary, because I think it would expose many of his ignorances. But... <laughs> <laughs> Neither here nor there. All right, David, set the scene for us. What year are we going to start off here? Right. So today, on this episode, we're going to be talking about the end of the Russian czarist system, the Russian Empire. And so that'll entail sort of beginning in 1858, but we're going to move on very quickly from there. So what's so going Marx on? Marx is still alive at this point, right? In 1858, I think that's right. Yeah, yes, he dies when a um, little later, I like 1870-ish. <laughs> I actually don't know for sure. 1883. Ah, same year Wagner died, huh? Hmm. That I didn't know. I would have thought that Wagner lived a little bit later than that, but we're off track. Anyway, so <laughs> 1858. This is in the reign of Alexander II, who is remembered as sort of like the great reforming emperor. At least after Peter the Great, who did it much earlier. Yeah. So but. czarist rule, absolutist rule, right? The czar is more than king. The czar is Caesar, yeah. right? That's where that right. name comes from. The czar is emperor uh, and, you know, intentionally kind of likes to harken back to the most famous emperors of the Byzantine Empire. Yeah. Um, autocrat, you know, legally enshrined autocracy. The czar's word is law. And right. the Russian people, by and large, pretty favorable toward this system, right? For the most part, yeah. You know, it was... Autocracy is, for us, a pretty dirty word. You'd accuse an enemy of being autocrat. But they actually use it as one of their titles, the czars. Um, yeah. And it's and, and the czar was viewed as the friend of the people. You know, a lot of times his yeah. ministers weren't. Um, but sort of a paternalistic attitude. You know, he's everybody's yeah. daddy. Right. And, you know, it's... it's Who's your almost... daddy? The czar Alexander is your daddy. <laughs> It's got an almost religious aura to it. The idea being that, you know, the czar is sort of the reflection of God's rule. So God, you know, he rules by himself. And that this the makes, because they have a state church himself. there. And we've yeah. talked about state churches before. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church was very much a state church. And if you know much about yeah. them, very steeped in their tradition and mm -hmm. liturgy uh, and those sorts of things, you know, historically, whatever the religion is. Uh, if you have lots of forms and ceremonies like that, it tends to prop up continuity in your government. Yeah. yeah. So Alexander II, though, is a reformer in certain key ways. Probably the most famous thing is that he liberated the serfs. So for... Liberated the serfs. Right. So, so for what the... year are we talking about here, David? That is 1864. Or excuse 1864, me, 1864. Russia still has me. serfs. I had that backwards. 1861. Yeah, the judicial reforms were 1864, I think. But yeah. 1861, Russia still has serfs. Let's pause. Right. There. What's serfdom? Yeah. Serfdom is. I'm getting into my lawyer mode here. You know, ask yes. a question. That that works though. You can tell a story that way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So serfdom is somewhere between slavery and being a peasant, basically. So you know, yeah, serf, are serfs people? Is that is that like somebody who lives on the land of a lord? What is a serf? Yeah, so they actually continued to calculate wealth 
in Imperial Russia in terms of souls by the number of serfs who live on your property for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that so, sounds like slavery. Yeah, it, it's it's not that they you know don't have any rights or don't get paid at all or et cetera et cetera. But they, they have the rights of serfs, which are legally have, distinct from the rights of lords, right? Right, and so. very very <laughs> limited. Like you're not free to move. You have you are bound to the land. You and your family have to stay on the estate. You know you owe the landowner a certain amount of labor. Um, he also yeah. owes you stuff, though. You know, he owes you protection, so on and so forth. Very hard for you to enforce those rights. A lot of yeah. times the legal systems did not have avenues. and In fact, in Russia, they did not really have an avenue for serfs to enforce their rights. But right. they at least theoretically had certain rights, which makes it different from chattel slavery. Right. But it's not, yeah, it's not where you want to be, basically. <laughs> not know, where I uh, choose to be, no. No. Uh, you have, a, yeah, your, your rights are very curtailed. So, so Alexander II then sounds pretty liberal. You know, he's getting rid of serfdom. In, in comparison to some of his predecessors, yes. Um, and a little bit before 1861, there had been, you know, some minor reforms with state censorship. That's actually kind of important as well, but we'll just take note of that. They still had censorship. Well, and, so, and that's kind of the thing you notice in all of these is as they're allowing the people... I don't want to call them rights, but as they're allowing people various liberties, they actually pretty firmly and steadfastly insist that they are not rights because the czar remains supreme. The czar is an autocrat. Any dispensation he gives you is purely by his own benevolence. Yeah. Sort of like the attitude that Bernie Sanders has toward, (laughs) you know, government handouts. Yeah. Out of the kindness of his heart, or I guess if we're taking your example, Bernie Sanders' heart. Right. <laughs> he will make some allowances for you. Yeah, um, it's, your rights are not pre-existing. Your rights, in fact, they're not, again, I think rights is the wrong word to describe this. Yeah, liberties is probably better. So there is, yeah, there's an increase in civil liberties, especially for, you know, the huge numbers of Russians who are yeah. agricultural workers. who. So I'm, I'm letting you, just to be clear, I'm letting you publish anti-government speech, but understand I could stop letting you do that. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's policy. It's not a legal right. Right. Basically. The other really big one, also in 1864, as well as the judiciary reforms, is the introduction of the Zemstvo, which is basically yes. a local body with some self-governing powers, whereas before, everything went through the czar's governors, basically. So there's the regional no... regional governors had direct control yeah. over their territories. Yeah. So this is the first sort of self-governing representative government body beyond yeah, so like the purely local one. They're elected, right? So yeah. it's, it's sort of a town hall style. You get together and you elect your local Zemstvo. Yeah. And they, I don't know that they have any actual legal powers, but they were then answerable to the czar. So they yeah. could bring petitions to the czar. Um, there was some representation in yeah. central government. Now, they didn't and, have any power to actually do anything, but at least there was now an established mechanism for yeah. hearing the will of the people. Yeah, and you know, so for the most part, it's gonna be involved in local administration, how you use the funds that are allocated to your region for you know whatever purpose, but there's some kind of, you know, we're, we're beginning to see some real representation. Now, how did the people get these beneficent concessions from the state where there are a bunch of communists going around saying you know you got to give us zemstvos or we're going to rebel or how'd they get this stuff for the most part it was because well 
there's a pretty marked tendency with the Russian emperors to be either westernizers as they saw it you know big admirers of developments in western europe and they're like we uh -huh. gotta be modern we gotta follow the trends we gotta and you, open and you see that a lot particularly i think people the higher echelons in russian society because russia yeah. was very well they were a bit late to the game compared to the rest of europe <laughs> everybody else had gotten rid of serfdom like a thousand years earlier than that <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I you mean, know yeah and, and they'd become sort of a major player in British diplomacy, especially after the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Um, they got very involved in what Western Europe was doing, and they were a little bit embarrassed to be sort of behind the times. So what you yeah. start seeing them do is appropriate a lot of particularly French customs. Mm -hmm. And you see that in the art. You know, I was playing something from Tchaikovsky earlier. Uh, some people will argue Tchaikovsky's got a lot of French influence. Yeah. Um, I yeah, think he's sorry. very distinctly Russian, but certainly you you can see where it's not you can see where it is borrowing the modes and forms of Western Europe. Yeah, and so you know mo most of the Russian nobility speaks more French than Russian among themselves. They you know in increasingly also though just general Western European stuff. They love English literature. Uh -huh. They you know there's a bunch of um, Germans who are in government and in the nobility. Yeah, and, you know. Just Which is not that popular with the general public because they don't no. really like the Germans being there. And we'll, we'll get really more into that Germans. later. It's, it's <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get more into that later. Barbarous and backward people. Uh huh. Sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the 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 czars tend to be either westernizers, sort of modernizers, and that's definitely what Alexander II was like. Or they tend to go the other way and say, no, it's all about Russia traditions. We're you know we gotta go back to our way of doing things. So and, you know, sort of at, at this point, sort of the, the modalities of the elite, right, yeah. are going to be the liberalization, you know, adopt the things that are going on in Western Europe. That seems to be the hip new way of doing things. Exactly. And the more grassroots um, yeah. movement is going to be for traditionalism, right? Exactly. Keep yeah. serfdom. The serfs like serfdom. <laughs> serfs mostly don't like serfdom, but they like a lot of the things that are associated with serfdom right. in the minds of the, yeah, the more educated and liberalizing classes. So yeah. So, so your conservative yeah. movement is the populist movement here, and yeah. your progressive movement is the one that's kind of foisted upon them by elites. Yeah. So and no, then, there were not communists agitating for these reforms in answer no. to the question. What you do have, and we'll get more into this in a minute, are these people who call themselves nihilists, and they're sort of the real terrorist radicals basically and what they want is just to destroy everything tear it down no i got that from the name <laughs> yeah it's it's nihilism <laughs> in a very literal sense nihilism nihil means um nothing and they Latin. want to annihilate right yeah so they think the whole thing is just corrupt we and we can't even talk about what we actually want to replace it with until we've torn it down because our ways of thinking are too corrupted by the present system so we just got to get rid of it and we'll figure out what we're going to do later and Surprise, surprise! Mm -hmm. Those are sort of the um, the ancestors. Well, they murder the, the czar at one point. They do. So <laughs> Alexander II. Regicide, kind of a big deal, usually. Yeah. Oh, oh. We, so to wrap up with Alexander's reforms, the judicial oh, reforms, the most important yeah. ones, the only ones that we're qualified to talk about. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so the judicial system that's been in place in Russia, pretty much dated back to Catherine the Great. Yeah, right. A long time before. Um, that's yeah. Now, now who's more than a century great? before? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's pretty much all I need to know about her. Is that was more than a century earlier? Yeah. And how, how did that system work? 
basically the courts were just another extension of the official bureaucracy especially the criminal courts which were yeah. I mean, just sound just horrendous i mean it's mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't really even call it a trial at all because really the person who's investigating you is oftentimes the same person who's putting you on trial there was no right to representation you couldn't bring yeah. a lawyer you couldn't investigate and find your own evidence you pretty much just responded to charges brought against you yeah and as you can imagine most people were convicted <laughs> yeah and yeah like you didn't you weren't even necessarily in the same room as the person who was judging you at any point during all right. this. Yeah, but the, but the civil also you know, also had issues. I think mainly administrative issues for the civil courts. Yeah. Uh, they they were also were they judge panels or single judges that would render findings of fact. I think that depends on the specific kind of court, but okay. Yeah, but I, I, I wouldn't swear to that. Verdict. So. Um, Finder of fact was judges in most of these mm -hmm. cases. So what the Judicial Reform Act of 1864 ends up doing is it introduces juries for the first... Oops, I hit that. <laughs> introduces juries for the first time in Russia, yep. in both criminal and civil proceedings, and totally revamps the criminal justice system, makes it work basically yep. the same way as the civil one. So now the defendant and the prosecution are equals before the court. Uh, defense can bring their own evidence. The court is independent from the executive power. So you get an independent yeah. judiciary. Yeah, and you, you can have a defense attorney in a criminal trial for the first time in Russian history, which so that feels a like a pretty one. big one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they also, start, they didn't really have lawyers before. I mean, there were people who could represent you in court, but they weren't yeah. really lawyers. They were scriveners. Yeah. So I think we've get the first bar association in Russia at this time too. Somebody to actually vet lawyers, yeah. make sure they're competent. And I think that that body was independent from the czar as well. I think it was a corporation. Yeah. So I, I was reading a little bit about this today. And yeah, like basically the the idea was there's still no independent legislative power, but this is the creation. Well, the czar is an autocrat. Right. But this is the creation of an independent judiciary. Um, now, for the, for the Most countries time. to this day do not have an independent legislative and executive power. Yeah. yeah. That's what a parliamentary system is. So, mm -hmm. yeah, th this really brings Russia up to date. Uh, they no longer have to be embarrassed when they go to parties with the other <laughs> countries. They can say that we're a liberal democracy just like you, except that we're not because we're still an autocracy. Right. <laughs> but Because we can't anyway, shed that. That's important. No. And, you know, to be fair, we've talked about this before, but the, you know, the institutions of a really representative government depend on people being able to engage with them well and fully and uh -huh. you have Russia to know was, what's going on Russia was frankly not in a position to do that and you know to a certain extent it was their own fault that that was the case because they'd spent so long with you know this sort of really severe form of serfdom that pe most ordinary people wouldn't really be able to participate in the legal system in any sort of meaningful way or the political system for that matter it's but, actually kind of ironic that they end up being the first communist country because it, yeah. it actually flies in the face of Marx's historiography because exactly. he says that you, you got to go from feudalism to mercantilism to capitalism, and then you can have the revolution to go into socialism. Well, they skipped two of those steps. Yeah, and we'll probably talk more about that in the next episode, but that's exactly right. And the, the way I think we think of communism today as primarily sort of like a peasant sort of thing. Very oh, I, I was going to say plague upon the world. But. <laughs> well, that, that too. But... The, you know, we, we think of 
communist revolutions happening mostly in poor agrarian countries. reformers they yeah. like to, they like to call themselves agrarian reformers <laughs> i mean that's the china cuba yeah yep. every i mean south america every time it's oh i'm not a communist i'm an agrarian reformer and then lo and behold it turns out they were a commie all along right but anyway that image is completely <laughs> reversed from what the sort of prevailing Marxist orthodoxy was, though, that it had to be developed economies that went communist. They yeah, were all the expecting urban it to proletariat. Happen. They were all expecting it to happen in Germany or England or, you know, well, actually, mostly just those two places. Maybe, it's got to be the urban proletariat. France, but, yeah. yeah. That's the, the, the factory workers. Like in that Russian movie, Strike, you know, they, they all work in the factory, and you can tell that they've become just like the cogs and the gears that they're forced to maintain until yeah. one day they assert their human spirit and, you know... Decide to shed their chains and yeah. work well, in the world anyway, tonight and anyway. so on and so forth. But anyway. We're a bit <laughs> off track. What I was going to say. There, there were from... factories in Russia. They, they there, are trying were... to industrialize at this point. Yes. Uh, and their factories are actually subject to widespread strikes. Mm -hmm. Because it turns out when you try to run a factory on a feudal model. It's not great. <laughs> it's not great. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're protesting for like 11 hour work days. You know, is the right. kind of thing that they try. That's the concession they're trying to obtain. Yeah. But um, what I was what I was going to say, though, is that Alexander II is making pretty solid needed reforms on a fairly realistic timeline. Yeah. Basically, you know, Russia isn't ready to flip into a Western style republic overnight. Right. It just and, doesn't and the have the. Yeah. And it's, you know. As much as you may think, gee, like the czar just advertised the fact that he's an autocrat, like mm -hmm. that's a bad PR move. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you take away everybody's rights, act like a dictator, but you're not supposed to tell the people that. Like that's, <laughs> that's how you get them to rebel. This guy was asking for it. I mean, that's probably what you're thinking, right? Yeah. As much as that, you know, that's my knee jerk as well. The integrity and stability of Russian society at this point very much depends upon the person of the czar. Yeah. You know, all of their forms and ceremonies and customs that are practiced by the church, practiced by the government, are centered on that person. Yeah. So you can't really shed Russia of that at this point. You'd get yeah. anarchy. I mean, that's, right. which is what the nihilists want. So, exactly. you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're cool with that. But everybody else, for the most part, they like the czar. They view him like they're, you know, he's the country's daddy. They love him. And yeah, they wouldn't want to get rid of him. Yeah. And so uh, it's funny that you mentioned the nihilists. Um, they don't like sort of gradualist reform because it might would stabilize the system. Uh, I would imagine and they wouldn't. They, the last They're called thing they nihilists, want, David. Yeah. The, <laughs> la the last thing they want is a stable system. They assassinate Alexander II. Ooh. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know. Which, which. Taints revolutionary movements in Russia for a long time going forward. It does. And I talked earlier about czars being either one or the other of sort of modernizers or traditionalists. You get a pretty hardcore traditionalist backlash in his successors. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, the next couple of czars who come in, they're not really interested in reform. They actually walk back some of Alexander's reforms. Not, not next completely. You get Alexander 3.0 is the next guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's just, just when you thought you'd had enough Alexanders, you get the third one. Yeah. So in, we you got know, a lot he, of Alexanders here at Lex Rex, too. But. That's true. Well, we, we have two. Um, I don't know if yeah. that counts as a lot. But 
<laughs> More than one. Yeah. So he, you know, he sort of curtails the Zemsfo a little bit, which, as we mentioned, is that sort of local or, well, regional representative governing body. And, you know, they start to bring back a yeah, little... Yeah, we've given them too much liberalism. Look what uh, they did with it. And the state censorship <laughs> tightens up a little bit again. And, you know, just yeah, a bunch of weird anarchists just murdered the czar. I feel exactly. like that's a predictable response. Exactly. But Alexander III... M- much like Bernie Sanders would do. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, Alexander III <laughs> is, you know, he's reasonably well liked though for the most part there's not you know there's not huge demonstrations about anything being reversed he he's reasonably secure on his throne and he's big into uniting the people right yeah yeah like he he, he starts building railroads and stuff which were all the rage in at this period (laughs) in the 19th century it's you know you you weren't you were nobody until you had a railroad uh, and he says, That's you know, true. I'm going to I'm going to make the biggest, longest railroad ever. It's going to be even longer than that one in America. I'm yeah. gonna, they made a transcontinental railroad. I'm going to make a trans-Siberian railroad. And, and the goal here, again, is really to unite the Russian people because there's yeah. it's a huge country, a lot of different people groups, different ethnicities, different languages, different religions. Yeah. A railroad is going to tie them all together. <laughs> in, in some sense, anyway, you know. In some, it, he would have been a big Ayn Rand fan, I tell you. That's probably true <laughs> um, for multiple reasons. But, uh, yeah, and so, you know... If Loved you, his you, trains, that guy. If you've ever looked at Russia on a map, you're aware that it's very, very, very wide, you know, long east to west. And about, I say much in the manner of Jerry Brown. <laughs> yeah. About, about a quarter of the length of Russia is like reasonably well populated um and the rest of the three quarters of it is mostly pretty empty but i mean it's you probably always question why the heck is russia considered a european country when like 90 percent of it is in asia it's because like 90 percent of the population is in europe right but you know when you've got access to two oceans which they do at this point you have some interest even if they are frozen (laughs) <laughs> you have some interest in making sure you can get from one to the other. So in the States, in the, in the U.S., we have the Transcontinental Railroad. Russia's equivalent yeah. is the Trans-Siberian Railroad. They want to be able to connect their Baltic ports in the West with their Pacific ports in the East. Yeah, that's, that'll go a long way to industrialization. Yeah. All right, so what's next on our thing? Well, what's next is the beginning of the crisis years that sort of bring this all down. And that starts in 1891 with a very severe famine. What Russia, caused the famine? What's that? What caused the famine? Drought, basically. But also, in addition to Global drought... Global warming? Government policy. <laughs> government policy. That's what I was looking for, David. Yeah. So, you know, Russia, despite the fact that it's industrializing at a pretty good clip at this point, agriculturally, it's mostly still using centuries-old practices and, and tools. Um, it still was, even up to 1917. Yeah, actually, even up till World War Two. Uh, yeah, and that, that's some of what we were talking about with sort of populist traditionalism. This is a big part of it. Most people in Russia are agricultural workers. You know, it's a huge. A hand part plow of the is good enough for was good enough for my grandpappy. It's good enough for me. Basically, I don't need one yes. Of those, those newfangled cows. Yeah, <laughs> newfangled cows. Yeah, one of the one of the no, things that's, that that was a joke. But. Yeah, one of the things that agricultural modernization brought to the rest of Europe was a certain amount of 
drought resistance, you know, better um, irrigation techniques, better uh, plowing techniques. So even if the ground gets really dry and hard, you can still plow it, that sort of stuff. Russia mostly Turns doesn't have Machines that. are good at that. Yeah. Russia basically doesn't have that. They get unusually dry weather for an entire year, basically, and crops are failing. But the government's policy at this point was we need to get exports at all costs. So they want the grain we that is We need to remain an agricultural exporter because yeah. otherwise what's going to happen? Well, you're going to be dependent on foreign imports. You're going to have money flow outward. That's the fear. And trade you know, imbalance. Yeah, you don't want that. Exactly. So to force the peasants basically to keep selling their grain rather than keeping it to feed their family and their livestock, the government decides to raise taxes on domestic goods, basically the things Ooh. that the peasants need to buy. So they don't have enough money to pay for, you know, cooking utensils or clothing or this sort of thing, unless they sell their reserves that they needed to stay alive. So, yeah, and it turns out that people that can't feed their families, even if they were not previously terribly politically minded. That makes you political pretty fast. Yeah. If there, <laughs> you know, if the government, if you can trace to a specific government policy, that's the reason you can no longer feed your family. You're probably going to become political. Yeah. And this also, you know, seizing on what they think is this big opportunity, um, basically a wing of the nihilist movement called the People's Will. Who are these? Are sort of your real the terrorist activists? <laughs> not not that sense of the word. Will uh, the noun version of that? Boy, I, I, you, I, you gave me such a hard time. I made that joke like three times when we were preparing for this. I was <laughs> sure you were just gonna fly off the rails when I did it again. <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope. I'm not that easy. Anyway, so these are sort of you know, if you want to think about like Che Guevara going through South America trying to rally the peasants, that's these people. Um, uh -huh. And not very successfully, as it turns out. They think this is yeah, their opportunity. People are like, we have all these new mechanisms for having our voice heard by the czar, and the czar cares about us. We'll just go through those. Yeah. We don't, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's in part probably because of the reforms. There was a legally available means of resolving their issue. Yeah. And as we've mentioned before, the czar has tended to be a very popular figure throughout history, and he continues to be that. You know, they, they think he's got their interests in mind. I think this is a pretty common feature of monarchies where if the ruling monarch has done a pretty yeah. good job, people will always blame the officials below him before they'll blame him. Well, so, that's, that's true even in America. That's true of any executive. You know, if you look at opinion ratings of Congress, they're consistently much, fair. much lower than of the president. That's fair. But in, in this case, it'd be like... I, but, you know, even in the American Revolution, it's for the longest time, the uh, you know the Continental Congress assumed that the king must have been ignorant of what was going on here, and yeah. that it was all Parliament's fault. Yeah, and so you know similarly, people think, oh, you know, it's just it's the you know Minister of the Interior or whatever. He's the problem. The czar, he'll he'll have our backs. He'll he'll do right by us. And you know, for the most part, people continue to feel that way. Yeah. And there is a shift though uh, during this famine, especially in parts of the Russian Empire that weren't ethnically Russian because the, you know, the Russian empire had come to absorb a lot of territories, Poland, uh, Finland, right. you know. Well, and, and as we mentioned, Tsar Alexander III was big on sort of homogenization of the Russian yeah. people. Mm -hmm. And people don't really like it when you start trying to change their language and religion by force. Right. <laughs> Just ask my clients. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. 
<laughs> so <laughs> we bring lawsuits where the government's trying to change their religion or political affiliation by force. That's what they're doing, yeah. you know, by compelling speech they don't agree with. Yeah. And so, you know, while the system, the system is still pretty secure at this point, but you're starting to see a little wobbliness in it, basically. You know, that we're starting to get some hints that people are dissatisfied. You know, I'm not sure I like this whole autocracy thing. That's what right. makes him that's what makes him able to order me to speak Russian now. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure I'm a fan of that. I think I should have been able to vote on whether or not I'm forced to speak Russian now. Everybody around me would have agreed that no, I shouldn't be. Yeah. And because you know, I don't it, speak Russian either. <laughs> it's one of those principles where if you want all the credit when things are going well, you're going to get all the blame when things don't go well. And Well, but Donald Trump said um, prior <laughs> to the midterm election, he said that if it goes well, then he should deserve all of the credit. And that if right. it goes poorly, he should get none of the blame. Well, that's because it's just um, it's axiomatically true that he is a winner. So that's right. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all. OK. But it'll probably be just the opposite. The czars aren't able to to pull off that feat of Trumpian rhetoric quite so well. Oh, <laughs> and so they, well, that's too bad for them. <laughs> they do come in for some blame to do with the famine. Probably the year where things really start to go bad, and this is we're now, by the way, in the in the reign of Nicholas II, who is the last czar. He's the one, yeah. famously, that the Bolsheviks execute. He and his whole family. Um, oh, spoilers, well, David. <laughs> I think people know that, right? Um, <laughs> I hope they know that, but um, he, he's the one that, you know, they killed all of them except for possibly the Grand Duchess Anastasia. Yeah, Anastasia, who, well, we probably won't talk about Anastasia. Um, watch I guess the DreamWorks I, movie if you want to know what happened there. Or don't, because I'm, you know, I'll, I'll... I don't remember that. I don't even know if it's any good. I don't remember that movie at all. I'll say, <laughs> for my part, I'm pretty sure um, she died also, but... Um, you know. Oh, well, David, that's... <laughs> Is that a downer? <laughs> How could you be so callous? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not saying it's good that she died. I'm just, I'm pretty sure no. she died. Um, <laughs> anyway, the next sort of big, big wobble is probably the Russo-Japanese War, which people may remember this or may not from high school, but... Oh, I want to... I wanna... So we talked about the popular will idea. I want to mm -hmm. stick on that for just a second here. Okay. Uh, popular will. We've talked about that before in reference to the French Revolution, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Popular will, because remember, this, um, this nihilist group's going around saying we represent the popular will, even though it's like 10 people and everybody <laughs> else strongly disagrees with them. Yeah. That's because they're using sort of the Rousseauian idea of the yes. popular will, right? Where popular will is whatever I say, people people be darned, you know? Yeah, it's, it's not really what the most people say. It's what the people as an abstract want and yeah. you know you're kind of free to define that however you choose um, Rousseau called it general will mm -hmm. uh, Hegel called it the world spirit yes he did and, and Marx just called it dialectical materialism exactly because uh, <laughs> yeah it's there is no new thing under the sun as it turns out right but, uh, <laughs> but it's very important that they represent the will of the people whatever the demographics may yeah say. whatever individual people or even almost all the people may say <laughs> yeah so anyway the, we, we, the we could brand the podcast that way you know the only podcast that represents the general the will. will of the people yeah yeah 
<laughs> the world spirit. I, that world spirit's my favorite word for that. Weltan or what? Is it? Weltgeist, right? Weltgeist. Yeah. yeah. Weltanschauung is worldview. Is worldview. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Velt, so we're the Velt Guys podcast. So no, we're not. We're going to stick with Lex Rex Institute <laughs> podcast. Anyway, they're not even the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. No. It's just the individuals expressing them. Uh-huh. I couldn't get much further from Velt Guys there. Anyway, so so Russo-Japanese War. Yeah. So this starts in 1904, and you know basically Japan is a modernizing country at this point as well, and they you know because Russia reaches all the way to the Pacific. Uh, Japan and Russia, you know, they, they have a, a sort of sphere of interest that coincides in East Asia because Russia has reached the Pacific at this point. They've got interests in Korea. They've got interests in China. Manchuria places. is kind of the yeah. d- real dispute. And it remains disputed. I mean, if you know yeah. a lot about World War II, you know, they're still fighting over that region. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Manchuria is the area that they really want to settle. Yeah. And so, you know, they've been sort of... Famous for the candidate uh, that it produced. <laughs> Uh, good, n- nice reference. Uh, anyway. Well, communism, you know. Yeah. They're tangling with Russia over disputes about Korea, mostly in Manchuria. And Japan decides, you know, we got to do something about this. They attack the Russian fleet in Port Arthur, which is, despite its name, a Russian port on the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And they basically succeed in taking out that fleet. Russia, meanwhile, which, has... Which, you know, very contrary to what... Nicholas II promises will happen. Yes. So that, that's a big, big part of the story is he and his government have been talking up. We're a European country. We're advanced. They're backwards Look, Asian we, people. We have, we have people that vote now. Right. We, we, we've got it all. We have a couple of factories. We have a guy that writes quasi-French music. We've got like, a railroad. We've got it all. Yeah. We, yeah. We, we are going to destroy... These yeah. Eastern, you know, backward, yeah. right. That's, it's just, it's going to be a bloodbath. Right. And so they're talking it up. And meanwhile, I, I read a book uh, about the, this period at one point. They got a train that, even. <laughs> they do have a train. Privately, <laughs> Nicholas is actually kind of worried because like, you know, he has some common sense and realizes Japan is right there. You shouldn't have such a big game, had you, Nick- yeah. you Nicholas? Like, Japan you is right there with all of their assets. <laughs> you know, their army and navy are in the right spot to fight a war in the Pacific. And yeah, if you look at a map, it's like that far. But you know, <laughs> yeah. Russia's like, you know, I can't even fit it on the frame. It's so yeah. far. Yeah, if you're trying to move from the population center of Russia to the Pacific Ocean, it's, um, it's quite a long way. Um, even with your train. Right, but... He also, you know, so he sort of talks to his his advisors and he says, you know, oh, we've got all these things going against us. I'm worried about this. And he thinks about it and he says, well, but we're we're Europeans. We're not going to lose. He (laughs) bought his own propaganda. (laughs) So he bought his own propaganda. You never want to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we mentioned, they've built this railroad across the continent, but it's basically only the one railroad. And it turns out to be very hard to move a whole army that way. And it's usually like buried in ice. Uh-huh. <laughs> huge portions of it because as the name may suggest it goes through siberia yeah and in the meantime you know the demands of you can pain... see a lot of this stuff in the movie dr zhivago by the way which is a really good movie i've uh, actually Ron never Paul's seen that favorite one. movie I, I, I highly recommend it really good, good movie i've heard it's yeah. good it's about this whole kind of i think it starts in like 1905 which we'll get to in a bit but it yeah. goes through the whole russian revolution and yeah Alan Guinness is in it, and, <laughs> and 
and Omar Sharif. It's a good movie. Who does Omar Sharif play? Uh, Dr. Zhivago. Oh, really? Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, he's the main character. All right. Anyway, uh, it, it also <laughs> turns out that paying to move an entire Navy basically the whole way around the world, and, as well as transporting an army by a single railroad, turns out to be pretty expensive. So, you know, tax... Yeah, there's no short way to take your Navy. No. Like, the shortest way would be around the poles, but those are frozen. Yeah. And, so you've you got to go all the way around Africa. I guess you could pay Britain to use the Suez. They, they make a couple attempts to move parts of their Navy. A couple times they, they go the whole way around Africa, which that's a really long Brit- I don't think it was yet British at this point. No, that's it was. That's not important. It, anyway. the, the Suez was British at that point. <laughs> okay. And they, they do at one point reach an accommodation with Britain to use the Suez. But... You know, moving parts of your navy one at a time, most of the way around the world, not a great way to fight a war. They don't no. do very well. Meantime, you know, the budget is not doing great. They are, you know, mm, there's tends some to economic be the case during wars. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's some economic impact people get upset about, and that leads to widespread strikes, including most famously another movie actually, the Battleship Potemkin. Oh, mm-hmm. the other. Sergei Eisenstein movie. <laughs> Wait, was yeah. Strike? I think Strike was Sergei Eisenstein. But anyway, I know uh, Battleship Potemkin yeah. is. That's yeah. a very famous incident. What happens there? So you know, the, the crew of this ship. It's a little loud. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the crew of this ship, the Potemkin, they're already pretty unhappy, and they get you know uh, they get some rations that are clearly like filled with like insects and you know just gross that was in the movie yep and the ship's doctor under pressure you know sort of takes a look at it and says no no no, it's fine you can eat it and that's sort of the last straw and the crew of the ship mutinies and they sail the ship i think to romania to a different country anyway and they just like refuse to return to russia for years um but it kicks off this becomes lionized by the commies later yeah you know Mm -hmm. this is a this is one of their founding myths, yeah. But, and, you know, it becomes part of this wave of strikes, um, wave of protests, uh, including most famously Bloody Sunday, where I think it's 60,000 people. Oh, 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 I got a, I have a different one for that. Are you going to play the U2 song, or is this... Uh... No, I'm, I'm playing the second movement of Shostakovich's 11th Symphony. I mean, it's, okay. it's about right. this. It's, the right. symphony is called 1905. And second yeah, I wasn't sure how on yeah. the nose you were going to go, um, especially because the, the U2 song is not about yeah, this Yeah, directly on the nose. This is called um, January 9th. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know U2. I know Shostakovich. <laughs> yeah, well, they have, because multiple events get called Yeah, there's, there's the Irish, the IRA yeah. one too. Yeah, and that's what the U2 song is about. But anyway, <laughs> I think it's 60,000 people in St. Petersburg you know, they want to take a petition to the czar basically saying, do something for us, you know, either like, you know, better working conditions or less taxes or whatever. You know, they, again, if the czar is your father, you look to him to solve the problems, right? And these, these people are led by a guy by the name of priest Gapone, I think is Mm -hmm. how it's pronounced. So yeah, I I don't know how to, how to pronounce Russian, but uh, yeah. yeah. and, And he's, you know, I want to make it clear. These people are not a bunch of commies, you know. These are not, no. these are not filthy communists where you shouldn't really care when they get gone <laughs> down on the streets. Uh, these are. Uh, Capone is, is a Eastern Orthodox priest. Yeah. He is very insistent uh, in his preaching on 
you know, we are not revolutionaries. We are right. going to beseech the czar for concessions here. And they do this through the form that's very well established, has lots of precedent in Russian history, of making a petition to the yep. czar. So, you know, actually, I think he commands that people actually shred any revolutionary literature they have. You know, very, very clearly a peaceful protest. Yeah, and, you know, they, they come basically, as you mentioned, treating it like a, a religious event. You know, they come with icons and, and church banners and stuff like this. Um, yeah, it, but they, they want to go to the Winter Palace, which is where the Tsar lives in St. Petersburg, and present, you know, their case, basically, and say, you, you, you know, we need you to do something for us. And the Tsar probably... probably should have waited to start this music. It doesn't fit well here. <laughs> the Tsar, you know, probably fearing that, you know, much like what happened with his grandfather, someone's going to throw a bomb at him, um, you know. Decides to leave. Well, and, you know, he's nervous about this whole situation. The No, he leaves in the middle. He does, yeah. Yeah, just goes out the back door, goes to <laughs> Moscow. But, and, in the, you know, what's the point of leaving? if you? Because, you know, I, I would assume, you know, Tsar is not there. The crowds are going to disperse. Right, but nobody tells them that no. he isn't there. Right, and which is just sheer ineptitude. Yeah, no, it's it's <laughs> not well handled whatsoever, and you know, I I think it's one of those things that, which is very often the case. I think in things that get remembered historically as massacres, where somebody gets nervous, somebody with a gun gets nervous, and just sort of loses their courage and shoots at somebody. It's, it's actually. You know, it's a lot, it kind of reminds me of what happened in uh, Uvalde, Texas, uh, in, in that it's a bunch of different military groups yeah. that were protecting the Tsar's palace at the time without a clear command structure. Yeah. So they're kind of given general orders to disperse the crowd. But some of the groups take that as we should join the crowd and also protest the Tsar. <laughs> and some of the some of the groups take that as we should just break them into a bunch of smaller little groups and have them continue to approach the palace. And then others take that as we should shoot them on sight. Right. And uh, that's eventually what happens. Uh, somewhere between like 150 and 300 people end up dead in the aftermath. Yeah. Uh, several hundred. Czar never ordered it. Czar yeah. didn't want it. Czar didn't even know about it until later because he wasn't there. Yeah. That's... And, but you know, nevertheless, the czar takes the blame. Yeah. So you've got a few that's, hundred. That's the dead. downside of autocracy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, as we've been talking about, if you want to be the man then the buck does stop with you, unfortunately, yeah. when things go wrong. Yeah, at the very least, it's your fault for not being there, right? Right. And so, you know, in the midst of this disastrous war effort that's going on, now you have all this social unrest because of Bloody Sunday. You know, 200 people, people's a lot. Yeah. With, with The Boston Massacre was how many that basically spurred our revolution? The Boston Massacre that spurred our revolution was five people. Five, You know, yeah. that's... <laughs> yeah. In, what is that? That's like... I can't do math. Like 30 times, no, more than 30. It's like it depends 60 on, times fewer. It, it depends on whether you go with the top or the bottom of the range. But yeah, you know, orders of magnitude more right. anyway. And with, remember, with many hundred more wounded as well. It's not just the right. fatalities. And the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks didn't participate in this event. The communists did not participate uh, because they felt that the demands were insufficiently specific yeah. in terms of the political demands made. So remember, these people gunned down aren't communists, they're people. No, exactly. 
they're most of them probably pretty traditionalist because they right. are you know they're trying to use basically an ancient form here like a, a direct petition to the ruler uh to get what they want right what does happen in the aftermath, they do not get what they want instead they get death yeah what does happen in the aftermath and remember this is while russia is still fighting the japanese you get widespread strikes at this point basically as a form of protest um, yeah I would be mad about that, to be yeah. completely frank. I'd be pretty mad about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is <laughs> that's, where that, the That's communists... a lot of Bolshevik, if you ask me. <laughs> and this is where the communists do get involved. They try to hijack, basically, these demonstrations and turn them into mm-hmm. radical political events. The one place where they, they have any degree of, of success on this is in Moscow, which at this point... Moscow is not the capital of the Russian Empire. It is, you know, a very large city, culturally very important, but the capital has been moved to St. Petersburg. Right. But Moscow, they, you know, they distribute weapons to some of the striking workers. They try to build barricades in the street. The bike locks? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but, uh, it collapses pretty quickly. It's, you know, again, like they're not getting people to bite on what they have on offer, basically. But you are starting to see some real cracks in the foundation, especially, you know, the combination of having to fight a war and deal with internal instability. It's too much. So they try to come to a quick peace deal with the Russian, uh, with the Japanese, excuse me, on, you know, bad terms. You know, they, they, you can keep it. You can keep Manchuria, especially. And And that creates a whole half century of problems. Yeah. And especially when you've been shooting your mouth off talking about how, oh, you know, uh, we'll never lose to these backwards people. We're, you know, we're so great. We're so great. And then you basically fall flat on your face. Doesn't do a lot for your prestige. <laughs> Especially when you've just murdered 300 of your own people. Yeah. And as a way of sort of... <laughs> Things aren't looking good for his re-election campaign. To, but, you know, with a, with a domestic scene that's still not great, Nicholas II agrees to some further reforms, though, very much against his will. He was the traditionalist czar, basically. Uh-huh. If there ever was one... It was him. He thought, you know, he had this duty what about to Peter God. Peter the Great. Peter the Great was a reformer. Completely That's a different. Good point. That's, yeah, he was kind of um, a proto-Stalinist. Yeah, but uh, anyway, Nicholas, you know, he thinks basically God wants him to remain an autocrat. God wants him to be an absolute monarch. God wants him to, you know, sort of keep things the way he got them. And so it's very hard Convenient. for him. What's that? Convenient that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But and so it's sort of very much, you know, having his arm twisted by basically everyone among his advisors, he agrees to some reforms, including giving Russia basically its first national kind of legislative body that's actually represented. Yeah. That's elected. A, it's called, a weird, impotent parliament now. <laughs> yeah. You know, called, they, called the Duma. It's not allowed to like do a lot. I no. mean for the name like Duma, it doesn't do much. But there ooh, is a national ooh. representative body now. Uh, that... I don't like that that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's probably the major like structural concession he gives. You know, the Jure powers are never clear in this period right. because right. The, the Tsar does hang on to formal autocracy through the whole thing. Yeah, um, but there is a legislative body now. So just yeah, to, and to be clear you know he sort of squares it to himself by saying, "Well, as long as I can just dissolve the Duma whenever I choose to," which, um, you know. 
you yes, may another, re- another one of those things you don't want to say uh, when you're making liberal concessions. You know, that's, and, uh, all, all the rest of the autocrats, they just do that. Like, right. you, look, you know, you look at Ch- uh, Charles I, he didn't say, I have a right to dissolve parliament. He, he just, just dissolved parliament. Yeah. Just yeah. wait till you don't like what they're doing. Dissolve it then. You don't have to tell everybody that you got a right to dissolve parliament. <laughs> it's just not necessary. You don't signal that ahead yeah. of time. But at any rate, that's sort of how he squares it. That's, that's how he squares it to advise him to tell everybody that he can dissolve parliament or the Duma? I, I think he mostly keeps that close to the to the chest, but um, he doesn't. Well, he shouldn't have. He should have gotten some advice on that. <laughs> well, I think he did. He probably did, and I think they mostly told him, don't do that. But, um... <laughs> but he said, I'm the czar. I can do what I want. Basically, yeah. You know, it's it's important to him to feel like he hasn't actually change the system fundamentally and you know along with that just let the people think you have you'll probably be okay <laughs> like it's probably not going to do anything you don't like that much just no and wait to dissolve it until it does in fact <laughs> i i think it's i think it's at the breakout of world war one that the duma actually dissolves itself and they say like you know now's not the time for politics we're gonna get out of the way need to dissolve it um, yeah, I mean, they, they're like, oh, yeah, Zara, you get to pick everything again. We're going to dissolve ourselves. There was no need. Right. There's um, just no need. But uh, it's a policy change, not a structural change. So it's not as, as big a thing, but it goes with some slight relaxation of the state censors. You know, that's sort of the typical playbook um, mm-hmm. of that, that goes with this sort of thing. But all of this, every time he's like, but I don't have to, you know. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to censor things, but I could. Yeah. And so <laughs> it just, it's just like when they, they asked one of the, the COVID uh, conferences with President Trump, I'm getting pretty political on this one, but one <laughs> of the questions was basically like, what's your position on what you can order the governors to do with respect to COVID-19? Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I've spoken with my lawyers and I understand that the power is total. Yeah, yeah. absolute. And then the mm-hmm. reporter is like, um, that's like not true. Uh, who told you that? And then he's like, all the best lawyers. It's true. The power is total. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I, I personally thought, found that pretty amusing, but it's not it's fodder um, for your opponents. It's not great. Yeah. Not great PR strategy. I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, what, what's important to note though here is that, you know, there had been a certain kind of liberal desire for reform, not radical, but you know, uh-huh. th- there was a pretty broad-based support among, especially middle-class, educated people, to get something closer to you know, like the British system, something closer to Parliament. Right. And the Duma, as much as it wasn't a Parliament, it, properly speaking, it didn't have real independent legislative power, but it felt close enough for most people. They felt like and their I think voices part of the prob- were going to be heard. Part of the problem too is they weren't copying Britain exclusively; they were copying France. Yeah, that's true. Too. Had a new system of government every couple of years, and as we yeah. looked at, none of them were terribly functional. No. So, what are you going to do when you're when that's your model? Yeah. But for the most part, though, those kind of people were pretty satisfied at this point. You know, they mm-hmm. they didn't really feel the need for a lot of additional change, and that really sort of took the wind out of the sails of people like the nihilists or the emerging communist groups. In, in Russia at this point, you, you do have the beginnings of a sort of vocal communist movement. Um, yeah. But they were extremely sidelined. They were very much 
you know, most of them left Russia either because they were exiled or because they just didn't want to be around anymore and wanted to go somewhere cooler where they could be more communist like like Europe. Um. The, the irony is, though, and the reason we stress all this liberalization is the, the irony is that Marxist accelerationism tends not to work. Yeah. It, it's you don't get Marxist revolutions uh, when you encourage the government to be more repressive to the right. worker. Marxist mm-hmm. revolutions tend to come on the heels of a great deal of liberalization. The problems that Marxists are trying to correct, ostensibly trying to correct, you know, because I don't know that they're honest about that, but <laughs> the problems they're ostensibly trying to correct are generally already being corrected yeah. when Marxist revolutions take place. So yeah. that's and certainly so true here. How, how long have we been talking, by the way? Um, what, what, what are An we hour doing? four. Okay. So I think we save the beginning of the actual communist phase for for next time but suffice it to say things really only come down when world war one utterly destabilizes russian society on like every level right. um and it's not yeah it's not there's there nothing inevitable about it if you ask me you know that's the 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 classic marxist interpretation of history is that everything is always working toward a communist revolution i don't think there's anything to suggest that in the history it, up to World War One, well, we've shown a lot of points that it would where it would have been avoidable earlier on. Yeah, and at this point, it's still very avoidable. Yeah, but so no, you know, not inevitable at all. No, but as we've also seen, bad quality government, when you're a one man government in theory, is likely to cause a lot of problems. Right, and. I, I guess we should probably leave it there for now. Um, so next week we'll look at World War One and we'll look at the actual Bolsheviks. So yeah. we kind of have skirted, or you know, the communists have kind of been hiding in the background this whole yeah. time. They're going to come into the foreground next week. So join us for that podcast, um, and where we'll actually get into what the communists thought, believed, and did yeah. in Russia and the system that they. And probably the next week after that, we'll look at the system that they installed. Yeah, or and whether you know, or not it did what it promised, were the people lied to? <laughs> uh, spoiler: Yes, they were. <laughs> <laughs> he did not dishonor his oath to Lenin, David. <laughs> let's let's he's see. Faithful uh, to his oath to Lenin. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to talk about that movie uh, at some point in the next couple of weeks. But, uh, yeah, it's actually a line in a hymn sung to Stalin from a movie. But, funded um, and scripted by Stalin. Oh, a, a wonderful, <laughs> terrific, <laughs> terrific movie. Um, especially if you care about the density of steel. Um, or if you is... ever wanted dating advice from <laughs> Stalin, uh-huh. this is your movie. You know, this is, I think, the only one where you can get that. So, yeah, played by the actual body double for Stalin. Really, like, uh, yeah. His... So this is, you know, basically the real Stalin, since it's the only one that anybody ever saw. Yeah. <laughs> We have anything for Captain Kangaroo Court this week? We do. So if you want to hit that, all piece right. On. Let me find it. All right. And in case you thought that you weren't going to get any of this today, you were wrong. We still have it, where we explore the magical, wonderful, strange world of injustice throughout the land. Captain Kangaroo Court. Yeah. This time, all right. I'll admit, I have a few things sort of in my file for this. We are running overtime again so i think maybe just one once again and this is no let's do two this is all right well we'll see but this is going to be a throwback because this is a hot take but it's one that is actually surprisingly relevant 
while also just being um, pretty infuriating. So, so this is a tweet this is from Twitter. Yeah, from someone who, based on their emojis in their Twitter profile, uh, seems to be British or from you know at least an Anglophile as well as mm-hmm. supporting Ukraine. Got that Ukrainian flag, but saying it wouldn't work in the U.S. Not sure what that's in reference to because the, the, the place I found this didn't provide the context, but Congress is a parliamentary system and can abolish the position of president and rule without one. The states can too. <laughs> no. No, that's wrong. Yeah. We haven't we haven't said this in a while, but a dollar a day can keep this person off Twitter. <laughs> like send us a dollar a day and and that's all it takes. Keep this person off of Twitter. That's Mhm. What? Yeah, uh you know, one of the frequent His, sort of contrasting... They are very famously not a part okay. Yeah, I don't even know where to begin on. It, uh, a pretty... obvi- I, I hope that you know this is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's to the point a pretty common way of distinguishing different types of governments that are representative governments from each other is to say are they a parliamentary system or are they a presidential system yeah. um the u.s that's a good point we ha- we have a president so i hope you can guess that means we are not a parliamentary system <laughs> right what are this, the main- I th- and it's, they're using two different senses of parliamentary too that's true too yeah and the one part they're referring to like parliamentary government and then right. the second half is referring to parliamentary rules of order mm-hmm. like like if you're using, like using robert's rules of order they're talking about how you appoint and remove a president of like a committee yeah yeah <laughs> so it's not even using parliamentary correctly and then what I find really fascinating is the idea that... Also, the, 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 by the way, the, the House and Senate do have their own rules of order. Yeah, that's uh, true. They actually, they have to approve them each session of Congress because the Constitution says that you can't have any rule of Congress as binding upon a future rule of Congress. Mm-hmm. So basically, you can't just get entrenched systems that evolve over time the way that they did in the British Parliament. They actually have to pass new rules of order every session. So that's, you know, how you call the question, yeah. uh, how committees are formed, how a bill... Uh, gets on the floor, uh, the manner in which votes are called, how who can talk when, you know, rules of that sort. They have to pass them again every new Congress. It's not parliamentary rules. I mean, people might call it that colloquially, but they have their own rules. Yeah, you, people may remember that the parliamentarian of Congress was in the news um, last year, the year before, I forget. Um, but, you know, to, to do with uh, some procedural questions um, in, in Congress. But what I find interesting, too, though, here is this contrast between Congress being able to abolish the system of a president, which, as you mentioned. Yeah, and then it just jumps to the states can do it. Yeah, which, as you know, mentioned. I, that's not, that's, you're not going to find that in Robert's Rules of Order, I tell you that. <laughs> yeah, because we seem to be, you know, granting them the benefit of the, of the doubt. Maybe that's what they meant about Congress being able to do without a president, is that, you know, in the, in the sort of functional sense. They don't need to, to have a president of the of the board, basically. But yeah, that's I'm pretty sure that's what they meant. But then what the would it mean for parliamentary this, be relevant? What would the states yeah. be doing in that case, though? <laughs> that's just that's just an additional thing. Also, the states can get rid of the president. Yeah, uh, not not quite sure what that means. But. Now, the states could pass a constitutional amendment abolishing the office of president. They, they could do that. That That is true. That is true. I don't think that's ever, ever going to happen. No, and I don't but, think they should do that. No. <laughs> but they could. 
they 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 could in theory do that uh, all right that was horrendously bad um yeah yeah really a dollar a day donate lexrex.org slash donate we'll we'll keep this person off twitter yeah um, that's your promise <laughs> It's not promised. That's that person's probably no. still going to be on Twitter. Yeah, we, we probably can't actually do anything about that. Um, well, we can educate her. If we can get in touch with her, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we get a big enough audience, maybe. This one, um, we're going to have to go through at light speed, but you had an episode of Remedial Civics somewhat recently about sumptuary laws. And I did. It wasn't it wasn't supposed to be that, but it did end up being that, yeah. <laughs> For people who haven't seen that video or aren't familiar in general, sumptuary laws are, are laws about, you know, sort of personal behaviors, things you could wear, things you can eat. Um, and yeah. historically, these have been extremely popular to implement. I found... And believe it or not, these, di- these didn't come from the fashionistas, <laughs> you know, the high fashion folks. They actually came from the more conservative folks who didn't like people to dress in, you know, flashy... Flashy, ostentatious scarb. Yeah, and so I, I found this article. You're scrolling awfully fast, David. Yes, because most of them are not actually that surprising. Okay. Um, well, I saw playing football was on there. Yeah, that that one. I think was a relatively new sport. Well, they they Didn't mean that was around in the medieval times. They mean football, not uh, not football. Oh, the European kind. Yes. <laughs> um, oh, I see. You have a you do have a Union Jack selected there at the top, so <laughs> I guess that makes sense. Yeah, you know. So th- this is an article that's called like the seven most obscure laws of of the English medieval era or something like that. Most of the things they th- they chose, I think, are actually not that obscure if you know anything about medieval history, because it's stuff like you know the royal forests. You can't go hunting in them, and like you know. Um, if you've read Robin Hood, you know that. Yeah, you know, it, some, like if you know anything about medieval Europe, you know that. Yeah, um, but this, <laughs> if you've seen the Disney Robin Hood, I'm pretty sure you know that. <laughs> this this one though actually did surprise. I don't actually me. remember. That might not be mentioned. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie since I was probably eight. But. It's in Men in Tights, though, because they spoof the scene from the Errol Flynn Robin Hood where he comes in with the deer over his shoulders, mm-hmm. but he has the pig instead and says he hunted that in the King's Forest. So <laughs> it's in the Mel Brooks Robin Hood, if nothing else. Yeah. But this one I actually found somewhat surprising. Uh, this is the last one on their list, and they say it was enacted in 1336 and repealed in 1856, but Edward II quote, criticized the outrageous and excessive multitudes of meats and dishes that his nobles were eating. A 1330, 1336 statute. Oh, my, my dad would sympathize with him. He hates multi-course meals. Yeah. So bring it all out at once, you know. A 1336 statute of Edward III lamented the many mischiefs that were caused by many sorts of costly meats, which people of this realm have used. And it ruled that uh-huh. no man of whatever rank uh, he be shall be served a meal with more than two courses. Uh, and then they say, except at certain festivals like Christmas, on which three courses were allowed. So wow. when it's Christmas. So you, you have to have dessert or salad. Yeah, you can have. Uh, you can't have both. Or you could if you want to get, you know, if you're really a savory inclined person, which generally speaking, I am. I, I, I tend to prefer savory to sweet. Maybe you go soup and salad and a main. But uh, well, only on, that would be three courses, David. Exactly. But only on Christmas. That's what I'm saying. On Christmas, on Christmas you can do it. Yeah, yeah. The rest of the time you can't do that. And uh, this, <laughs> this also reminds me. One huh. of uh, one of my favorite Onion articles that I've ever shown you. The headline was, Modern Day Caligula Orders Everything Bagel. 
<laughs> and it was all about this idea that this guy, you know, who could have comprehended the luxury of right. ordering a bagel uh, that has sesame seeds and poppy seeds and garlic on it. He couldn't be satisfied with just one. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's... Exactly. Yeah. Um... But I thought it was interesting because, you know, you, you think of medieval feasts and you think of the king as being this guy who wants all the courses you can possibly get, you know, pheasant and pork and all this stuff. But apparently, apparently not. Edward III, he thought salad and main or so main it, and dessert. In America, this law, well, it would be of dubious constitutionality. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, co- Congress could say that they're banning restaurants from serving more than two courses because that would be a regulation of interstate commerce. What if it sources all its food from in-state? That case has already been heard. I know. That's, I know. that's already been decided. It <laughs> may serve patrons from out of state. So Yeah, we, we've talked be. about it as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so according to, you know, the FDR era court, uh-huh. this would be probably be legal as long as it's not also regulating like family meals. Unless, unless it's family meals for farmers, because anything they use themselves could affect the interstate That's market. That's true. That's mm-hmm. true. Because they, they, they would otherwise sell it yep. on an interstate market. <laughs> so they can regulate that. Uh-huh. Yeah. If they were to pass a law like this, give us a call anyway. Uh, we, don't, <laughs> we don't think that that precedent is good or valid. But that is the current state of law, yep. is that this law would be perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. So. It's almost as bad as the Bloomberg soda law, if you think about it. Almost as bad. It's pretty similar, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except that, like, his is actually way, like, a little bit worse. Because if you're looking at, the, the third one is, like, we don't want people to be excessive, you know, garish. Uh, yeah. You know, um, it's des- it's designed to sort of make people be moderate and restrained in their activities. Yeah. Whereas Mayor Bloomberg just thinks that people are getting too fat and drinking yeah. too much soda. <laughs> No, no fatties. Like, yeah, it's just like people don't know that it's bad for them, so we got to limit how much they they take in. Yeah. yeah much like Lenin would. Yeah, that, that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if, if Lenin had had access to soda. Or certainly Lyshenko would have done that, you know, because <laughs> certainly Lyshenko would have yeah. done that. Because that that's not his name, is it? Lysenko. Uh, Lysenko. Yeah, he, he definitely would have done that mm-hmm. for sure. Maybe we'll talk about him. Uh, in one of these episodes. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> all right. So that's all, folks, for Captain Kangaroo Court. Uh, thank you for joining us for that wonderful, wacky, weird segue into the idiosyncrasies of medieval law. Uh, we hope that you join us again next week for another similar excursion. And that's all for that segment. Yeah. And that's um, basically going to do it for this episode, except for the best segment we've got, which is our disclaimers coming up just in a minute yeah but thank you for joining join us again next week or it's actually probably going to be two weeks from today yeah we'll have the date and the description that's (laughs) going to come out because i haven't calculated that but our next episode will actually get into what the communists are like i think we got a real treat planned for you guys for that one (laughs) yeah you'll love it you'll just you'll You'll love it it. it's yeah (laughs) you know the will of the people and all anyway night folks thanks for listening thank you Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L E X R E X.org. 
As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.